Overthinking and Podcast, episode 14. We are really, really excited to bring you this podcast. We've been planning it for a while. I mean, ever since uh, this film was announced, it was clear that we wanted to devote a whole Overthinking It podcast to it. Uh, So without uh, a great deal of fanfare, let me just get to... Uh, the panel one by one. I'll introduce them and just, I mean, say, uh, say what is exciting you most about the project. Uh, in in alphabetical order by last name, we're joined first by Matthew Belinky. Hey, Belinky, what's going on? Uh, I'm just so thrilled that BHC is finally like part of our lives. That like the wait is over and now the enjoyment has begun and probably will continue pretty much throughout our lives. Right. I mean, thank God for Blu-ray, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Each hair in in crystal clear definition. And they they do they do have a lot of hairs. That's like that's a common myth about them that they don't have any. That's true. You look close. Matt joins us from uh, Manhattan, and also from Manhattan, here is Mark Lee. Mark, how are you? I'm fantastic. What it's, the hell are we talking about? Well, you'll, you'll see, he came a little late on the call, but we have, been, uh, we have been planning this for a while. Mark, just jump on the bandwagon when it's time. Okay. All uh, right. I'm on that bandwagon. All right. Pete Fenzel is with us. Oh, wait, no. F is before L. Sorry. I guess I can't spell. Um, it's Pete okay. Fenzel- We're all really, really excited, Matt, about this project. <laughs> and and I'm, I, I just came out of the library where I've been looking up some of the references on the, on the taxonomy, you know, both cinematographic and canine and just really just really trying to get inside the mind of the people who put this together because it's it's really a piece of genius qua genius you know not just genius non qua genius but but genius qua genius cha genius <laughs> right and uh and oh i think i lost stokes oh and we're getting stokes back uh from brooklyn the bk if he ever gets back on the Skype call, it's Jordan Stokes. And no, he's gone again. Well, we'll introduce him when, uh, when he comes back. Well, it, it's clear that what we're all talking about is uh, the Citizen Kane for our time, the you know, greatest work of filmic art since... Uh, well, Snow Dog, really. Snow Dog, right? right, absolutely. Yeah, it is Beverly Hills Chihuahua. Uh, the, and, oh, and you know... Uh, Matt, it's, isn't it? Perhaps, it's Chihuahua, right? I it suppose. Right. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of alternate spellings of Chihuahua, and uh, you know, you want to make sure that you get it right. Um, you know, I don't know, Matt. What 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 do you think? Um, uh, it's a it's a stellar crew that they've assembled for Beverly Hills Chihuahua, isn't it? Yeah, I was actually most impressed with the cinematography uh, by a gentleman uh, named uh, Phil Michau, I believe it's French. Uh, his previous work, and I'm actually not being sarcastic, but this was actually Casino Royale. Before that, he did uh, The Legend of Zorro. Right. Uh, so really, Casino Royale is probably... Uh, you know, his his peak up until Beverly Hills Chihuahua. A stepping really, stone. A really, stepping stone on the way. 
It's as if everything on the screen looks like it's coated in like a, like a fine layer of gold. Yeah, and we have him back now. Jordan Stokes joining us from Brooklyn. Jordan, what is what is the thing that you've looked most forward to uh, in the number one movie uh, in America this past weekend? Beverly Hills Chihuahua. Well, shit, Chihuahuas, man. <laughs> yeah, right. I think <laughs> that's what you sign up for, man. How was I not going to go see that? I think um, it was, for me, the performance of uh, Edward James Olmos, who, in his uh, reading of Diablo, brings such gravitas, he brings such a dignity to, um, to this, this adorable uh, tiny dog. That I just forgot when I was listening to his performance that I was looking at a dog. I, I saw Edward James almost on the screen. Right. That's how he was. Right. I saw Mexican history on the screen myself. It was like it was like Pablo Neruda, honestly. <laughs> Rid large. Even larger than his normal work, which is pretty large actually, if I recall correctly. Okay, in all seriousness now, this is in this is unusual, right? That a movie like this would make thirty million dollars and be number one in America? What an awesome movie. <laughs> I mean, an unparalleled work of great genius and, and fortitude and, and artistic courage. Oh, I guess we're doing. We should actually give like a medal to whoever the last person on the podcast is to drop the sarcasm. <laughs> I thought we should give a, a medal called the Kangaroo Jack Award for movies that outperform their expectations time and time again. Okay, you know what really bothers me about Beverly Hills Chihuahua? What's that? <laughs> okay, let's get into it. <laughs> all right, all right. You've seen these posters, right? Where they give you the, uh, they tell you how to pronounce Chihuahua, because apparently that's a big problem. Okay. Like right? All right. And they, they, they tell you to put an umlaut over the last A. And that means that you would pronounce it either Chihuahua or Chihuahua. Neither of which no, 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 is how no. you pronounce Chihuahua. <laughs> no, if there's a Jordan, if there's an umlaut on the end of Chihuahua, you pronounce it Chihuahua Metal, right? <laughs> <laughs> right is there right. an umlaut? I haven't there, seen this. There's an umlaut. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Hey, wait, no, so, so Jordan, this actually interesting. Right. You're, so you're saying their advertising material has a, a faulty pronouncer for the word Chihuahua? I think so, man. I don't know how else to explain it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're using some form of a phonetic symbol that I'm not aware of. But like, it's really I mean, there are professionals here. <laughs> Professional <laughs> Chihuahua pronouncers. What? <laughs> this speaks know. to an underlying crisis surrounding the discussion of Chihuahuas. As I found out in my extensive research for this podcast, there's been an outcry from the Chihuahua Club of America because of the non-standard naming conventions that are being applied to Chihuahuas in the open marketplace and. Things like teacup, pocket size, tiny toy, miniature, standard. And to quote from their statement, the Chihuahua Club of America is concerned that these terms may be used to entice prospective buyers into thinking that puppies described in this way are of greater monetary value. They are not. And the use of these terms is incorrect and misleading. So the Chihuahua Club of America is doing its part to try to stamp down on the incorrect discussion and naming and perhaps even pronunciation of Chihuahuas. Uh, they are... They're just as few heroes in a great mass of villains. What are the prerequisites for membership to in the Chihuahua Club of America? 
I think first you don't talk about the Chihuahua Club of America. It does surprise me that the Chihuahua Club of America would be anti-Beverly Hills Chihuahua. You would figure like that would be like something that they would be on board with. <laughs> no, in um, all seriousness, for a moment, I think that like a, an advocacy group like that would be afraid that a movie like this would cause a lot of people... Uh, to run out and buy a Chihuahua, who perhaps aren't ready for the heavy responsibility of owning a Chihuahua. And the result of that is going to be a lot of abandoned uh, Chihuahuas, and nobody wants that. I think the result of that is going to be a lot of trips to Taco Bell. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, Matt, we all all Kiero. We we all do. So the result of everybody going to Taco Bell? Kieramos. Taco Bell. I mean, do you have to own a Chihuahua, or can you just be a Chihuahua fancier? To be there's a actually a code of, of ethics. Is it? I mean, Club of America. Which if I, I if I if for example I were to say, "I Chihuahua," am I now a member of the Chihuahua Club of America? Hold on, I bet you, my friend Senor Google has the answer to this question. <laughs> so, so it's like Islam. You just have to like say a phrase a certain number of times, and you become a member. Of, like. <laughs> Yeah, like, like uh, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. <laughs> so what is the code of ethics? It has the... a constitution and bylaws that you should learn about if you're really serious about becoming a member of the Chihuahua Club of America. <laughs> well, I, it's clear that I am very serious about becoming a member of the Chihuahua Club of America. Oh. Yeah. Want to recite the pledge? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're, you're, you're going for that medal, aren't you? <laughs> I pledge allegiance. Yeah, the code of ethics. So you pledge Say, uh, I, Matt Rather. I, Matt Rather. Uh, pledge. <laughs> do pledge. Do pledge. As a member of the Chihuahua Club of America. As a member of the Chihuahua Club of America. It's racist. <laughs> uphold the goals of the club as set forth in the club's constitution and bylaws. Well, I'm not familiar with the constitution and bylaws. <laughs> so, I can, I, can I interrupt for a minute? I yes. have here the mission statement of the Chihuahua Club of America right in front of me. Uh, it has, it's a six-point mission statement. Let me just read a couple. Uh, number one, to encourage and promote quality and breeding of pure purebred chihuahuas and if at all possible to bring their natural qualities to perfection wow that's playing god that's playing god it's eugenics well honestly dog breeding is eugenics (laughs) it's not even a weird debate pretty sure that's like the definition Uh, but they do assume that the chihuahua exists a priori of like the (laughs) fact that they've created the chihuahua well isn't that I mean isn't that the claim for sort of all dog breeds that they're all I mean, they're all just ridiculous inbred crosses of crosses, and I, you know, I don't even know how all that genetic works. I wish that. It'd be great if there was like Schechner if we could do here. that for people. If we could like breed yuppie and have like a yuppie, uh, you know, like like show where like you know a judge would award like whoever had the best yuppie would get like a trophy. Uh, I believe uh, they I have that's... it. It's called it's called Yale University. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. wow. Uh, Can I just one more item for the mission statement and then I'll stop? Yes, uh, number three, to urge members and breeders to accept the standard of the breed as approved by the American Kennel Club as the only standard of excellence by which Chihuahuas shall be judged. Okay, I can buy so that. This implies that there's actually multiple competing standards of what makes a Chihuahua a Chihuahua, and there's like a controversy going on. And like the Chihuahua Club of America is very much behind one particular set of standards. 
It's interesting that um, <laughs> the, the, the second thing that you said was that they're trying to, in as possible, bring their natural qualities to perfection. Was that? Yes. Was that? Yes. And the first, then, if it, if they said, if at all possible, to bring their natural. It's like I like how humble they are. They're like, look, this may not, it may not happen in our lifetimes, but we're going to try with every <laughs> outburst. It is a uh, is, a quixotic, you know, undertaking, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> This is fascinating. The impossible dream. <laughs> um, it's fascinating because you know, in that statement, they're saying that the you know the that Chihuahua essence uh, exists a priori and is somehow like handed down by God or nature or whatever. But then right. they fall back and they say like, oh well, no, it's what we have in this document that the American Kennel, Kennel Club gave us uh, that tells us what you know the natural properties of the Chihuahua are. Right. The, 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 the Chihuahua, the Chihuahua on Sikh, as it were. Yes, yes. <laughs> See, the way it is, is that the, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was God because if Pharaoh said somebody lived or died, that's what happened. So it's similar to the American Kennel Club because they are the ones that have the power to declare what a Chihuahua is and what a Chihuahua isn't. Since only God can do that, the American Kennel Club must be God. <laughs> the, um, yeah, that's funny. Like, why is he the captain? Well, we all do what he says. <laughs> I think it's time for a revolution against I, the iron-clad boot of the American Kennel Club and the. I'm, fa- I'm fairly sure that's what Beverly Hills. I'm fairly sure that's what Beverly Hills Chihuahua is actually about. That's the plot. Let me <laughs> let me close. Uh, let me close the discussion of Beverly Hills Chihuahua with a reading. <laughs> with her, <laughs> with a reading from the frequently asked questions page of the film Beverly Hills Chihuahua, uh, which is organized, which is organized catechetically as a series of questions and answers. Um, so, not as a Socratic dialogue, but as a catechism. My God, why? <laughs> it's um, you know. So, is there an official website? Yes, it's blah, blah, blah. Is it in animation? No, it's not an animated movie. They're using real animals. Uh, and then the, the, the most important question, is Beverly Hills Chihuahua based on a novel? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds kind of defensive, you know. It's like uh... Beverly Hills Chihuahua is a live-action Walt Disney film taken from a script by uh, co-writers Anna Lisa LaBianco and Jeffrey Bushel. So one of them is actually of Hispanic descent, which La- makes it okay. LaBianco sounds. I don't know. I don't know. Sounds Italian to me. But I'd like to. I'd like to point out uh, Placido Domingo, the uh, the opera singer, is in this for some reason, and he's he's Spanish, not Mexican. Justino. Yeah. <laughs> so so nice casting job, you jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, yeah, right. I mean, Andy Garcia, George Lopez, Cheech Marin, Paul Rodriguez. Wow. Uh, Placido Domingo, Edward James Olmos, Loretta Devine. There are worthier movies of of discussion, I think, and one of them is the Coen Brothers' latest uh, "Burn After Reading," a movie that we that it was you, Jordan, right? You kind of I won't say you disparaged, but you expressed some misgivings about on the blog after you had seen the poster. Oh, uh, the trailer. More. Oh yeah, because the poster was pretty fucking cool. Yeah, the poster was great. Kind of a. Hitchcock throwback of some kind. Exactly. 
which is totally ironic. I mean, which is totally ironic because it's um, it's very Hitchcockian in a sense, and also not at all, right? Because it's the MacGuffin in. Uh, oh, spoiler alert! By the way, for does anyone on the call care if you hear the gory details of Burn After Reading? Uh, or what? Not really. <laughs> Um, it's, uh, you know, the MacGuffin is this CD-ROM that contains information that is readily acknowledged early in the movie by all parties to be of no value whatsoever. And they're all, they're all chasing each other around Washington, D.C., uh, uh, going after this this CD-ROM. And in a sense that that's like, you know, that is the idea of the MacGuffin, right? That it really doesn't matter what it is. It's, you know, it's just a thing to make the movie go forward. I yeah. think it really matters a lot what the, what the loss of the Ark of the Covenant is. Thank you very much. You, <laughs> you religion-hating you, you. <laughs> you know, I, I always felt, and maybe this is just me, that like the most classic example of a MacGuffin is something where nobody actually knows what they're chasing. It's literally just a briefcase, and that like the contents remain mysterious. Well, I feel like you that's know, like, like in, in Ronan that they're after a case, nobody knows what's in it. That's like a very traditional MacGuffin, or, and that is it is a, a mysterious object of value. I think that's I think that's more of a meta MacGuffin. I think like the traditional MacGuffin is like in North by Northwest where you have the microfilm where like you know that it has quote government secrets. And then beyond that it doesn't matter, but there's like a reason for the people to care about it. When you have something like pulp fiction where you have the like the mysterious glowing box, that's sort of messing with the convention of the MacGuffin. Right, right good point. There's in the movie you don't have a real reason to care about. Or Ronan. I mean Ronan was written by I don't know if he's actually credited by name, but if it's if he's not, it's a pseudonym. It's David Mamet. Yeah. So he's, I mean, he too is like, and he's making the point in an extremely dickish way, uh, as he does. <laughs> as he's, he's yeah, as he does everything he writes. But that, like, you know, look, it really doesn't matter. Uh, or as he would say it, it fucking doesn't fucking matter what the fucking thing is. You know, yeah. what the, what the. The MacGuffin is. I'm thinking also of. Has anyone seen Kiss Me Deadly? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the one where the the briefcase literally has like a glowing, almost like like uh like mythological like light that comes out of it. Yeah, and it's about. I mean, you know, it's been analyzed in terms of like it's about nuclear holocaust. Yeah, like, but it's, it's like you know, because it literally burns his skin when he looks at it. Yeah. But, like, it's, and there's like and there are two endings to Kiss Me Deadly. There was a there was like a happier ending released, and then there was the you know director's cut. Um, why are directors always making such downer movies? Maybe that's why Beverly Hills Chihuahua like uh, you know made thirty million dollars. Maybe people are sick of you know directors with their uh, doom and gloom. Have you ever seen a director's cut that is in fact happier uh, than the film that was released in theaters? That's a good uh, I question. think like the like Freddy got fingered or road trip probably had extra. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how you define road trip. I mean, uh, sorry, how you define director's cut. Now, there's an alternate. <laughs> there's an alternate ending to Terminator Two, which didn't quite, you know, wouldn't quite call it part of a director's cut, but it actually, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but yeah, it was much happier. It actually saw, shows, it's much happier. Yeah, it shows Sarah Connor and, and then a park in the distant future where it's completely lays to rest any doubt that Judgment Day was averted because it definitely was in that. Because I gotta say, as much as I like Terminator 2, the actual ending is like almost borderline embarrassing. 
And it's like <laughs> literally, it's, this, it's this, it's this shot of like a dark road, and the camera's going down. It's very like film school one hundred and one. They might as well like have like two characters playing chess. Or Don't something. you think that James Cameron has earned that at that point, though? I think He's... that James Cameron would be the first to say that like that wasn't his preferred ending, and, and that the studio sort of wanted that. What so do you think? You think the studio wanted what the you know you think that James Cameron wanted the happy Sarah Connor in a in a in a, in a field uh, utopic ending? <laughs> no, the studio would no. have wanted the studio would have wanted anything that sets up that sets up a, a franchise a potentially. Yeah. yeah. James Although Cameron would have wanted to film Beverly Hills Chihuahua. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By the way, the, uh, the directors the directors cut of Beverly Hills Chihuahua with all of the the dream sequences with the unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> That prove that the Chihuahuas are in fact uh, animatronic robots, right? <laughs> and that, yeah, and that she's a replicant, but he goes with her anyway, even though you know they're both. They're, it's too bad she's a Chihuahua. They're both gonna die. Edward James almost again in both of these movies. Yeah. <laughs> wow! I hope you said that line in the movie. It's like it's too bad she's a Chihuahua, but then again, who isn't? <laughs> Burn after reading. Who saw it? I saw Burn after reading. What do you? What did you think? You know, I enjoyed it, but like I said in uh, my post, you know, I said um, that this is being marketed as the next film from the makers of No Country for Old Men, while, while it's clearly the next film from the makers of The Lady Killers. And I was, I was right about that. You, know? you think so? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, the, I think it's the next film from the makers of Intolerable Cruelty, which I put like just a step above Lady Killers. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right about that. In that, it has George Clooney. Oh, cool. in the Lady Killers. <laughs> oh, by, by the way, guys, uh, can I read a piece of trivia from uh, IMDb? <laughs> no, this is a, a coda to the Terminator 2 discussion. Okay. Where, uh, okay. Director James Cameron wanted to end the film with uh, the ending with an older Sarah in the future as a bookend, but executive producer Mario uh, Kassar wanted to end the film in another way as a measure for possible sequels. Uh, huh. James Cameron eventually relented with test audiences uh, reacting negatively over the coda ending and... and uh, that, that he was actually surprised when people didn't like seeing the old Sarah Connor and everything, and would rather end on a more ambiguous note. Interesting. So don't See, I mean, James Cameron is like a great director, but it's not like infallible, you know. I mean, he could still, and I mean, and actually, you know, there's a famous story that like the very end of uh, the Godfather, you know, where where you know everyone comes in and like kisses. Spoiler his- alert. Go on. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then, and, then, and then Kay is standing outside the door, and then somebody slams the door, and the last shot is, like, she's, like, getting shut out. Like, they originally uh, shot the scene that's in the book where she goes to, like, a cathedral, and she, like, lights some candles for, like, her husband, like, knowing that he's, like, a sinner. And, like, that's all that she can do. And they shot it, and it was the producer who, like, felt that it would be more effective to, like, end it with the door closing on her. Uh, so, I mean, what, whatever. I mean, like, you know, I feel like in America we have this feeling... That, like, you know, the director is, like, the alpha and the omega, and, like, everything that's in the film sort of, like, springs fully formed out of his mind, but, like, they are sort of, like, you know, um, collaborative efforts. Well, and, that's, like, a, that's an idea, that's a French idea originally, and comes from the French which is New the Wave. auteur. Yeah, it's, I, it's auteur yep. theory and the, and the French New Wave, right? That, that films are, um, that, you know, films are essentially documents of a director's vision, uh, rather than of a, you know of what, I don't know, a star or a producer, which was the, the case in American film practice up to that point. I don't know. Jordan, you probably have a better perspective on it than I do. 
I think that's pretty much what it means. I don't think that the uh, the auteur necessarily has to be a director in all cases. I think they would recognize that the organizing intelligence behind, um, you know, Billy Madison is like, Adam Sandler. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say, like, you know, like The Empire Strikes Back or something. It's, like, not so much a Lawrence Kasdan film, but... <laughs> I, I think that my uh, example actually proves the point better, but you know. I, I agree. No, with no, your... no, no, I, I, I agree. I like your example a lot. <laughs> but Doyle rules! Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, Jen, but you got cut off. You wanted to talk about Burn After Reading. Uh, you know, okay, so, you know, it's about the level of the lady killers. Uh, was there anything to like about it? There's a lot to like about it. Um, I think that. I mean, oh well, yeah, the the cast is tremendous, and they do a tremendous job. Right. Uh, Brad Pitt is doing his best Ashton Kutcher impression, and uh, if you if you think that that sounds like a you know a fun way to kill some time, like you'll really enjoy his character. <laughs> um, He's always got something in his mouth. He's always like sucking on something, like a yep. Slurpee or a piece of gum or something like that. He's always chewing, chewing, chewing. And he's uh, and he's always listening to music, and he's always dancing. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's and like and yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of little funny things. Um, <laughs> there's a there's an awesome scene with a uh, a fuck swing. If you enjoy fuck swings, you, you know the what I mean. <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah. No, it's pretty incredible. And there's a big reveal. Um, yeah. fuck swing. Well, there's a big re- I, and this this I don't want us to spoil because it's pretty it's pretty astonishing. Um, yeah. when it does happen. But, uh, yeah, no, there's a big sight gag um, that that has to do with the fuck swing. And, uh, you know, and George Clooney is always entertaining. It's nice to see him, this guy who's kind of America's, I don't know, not America's sweetheart for dudes, but, like, he's, <laughs> he's, still, probably, uh, he's probably, still probably America's most eligible guy, I suppose. And, like, he's to see him... Pl- for women, for women, for women. Yeah, damn it. And the, 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 to see him like lower lower himself so much to play like such an incredibly unappealing man is uh you know it's kind of gratifying. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely doesn't mind like hamming it up and everything. Like he doesn't. Well, not know. even. I mean, he, not only that he doesn't mind hemming it up, but he doesn't mind playing like a fundamentally loathsome character. Right, and it's not even loathsome in the way that like Michael Clayton was loathsome in a sort of Oscar bait kind of way. Yeah, right. like more in the way that many Coen Brothers characters are loathsome. That like they're they're petty and weak and stupid and self centered. Right. You know. Yeah. No, he's great. Yeah, he's great. But I, yeah, I think that the problem with this movie is um, a problem with a lot of their kind of lighter movies is that it's just like it. Those two guys hate everything and everyone, and they'll they'll just put that out on screen, and you kind of don't feel good about yourself after sitting there uh-huh. in the theater. <laughs> Do you think that the Cullen brothers are like they actually do hate everything and everyone? Uh, you know what? I think that uh, in people talk about how the Cohen brothers come down hard on nihilism in um, in the Big Lebowski, but like all of the the stuff bashing on nihilism is coming out of the mouth of uh, of the John Goodman character there, who's like the least reliable character uh, probably in any movie ever. And the actual nihilists, like they get made fun of for being bad nihilists for saying stuff like it's not fair. You know, I get the feeling that like actual nihilists, the Coen brothers would have much less of a problem with. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I, I, I guess like, you know, you look at all their, 
I don't know. I always like the Hudsucker Proxy, which is like a very sort of like optimistic, feel-good fable. But uh, I mean, it's definitely not one of the major Coen Brothers movies. You think about Fargo, and obviously uh, No Country for Old Men, and they're sort of like bleak tales of like you know, like uh, if you want to go way back into that sort of comedies with like John Turturro and Barton Fink and that stuff. Right. I mean, weird. I mean, they definitely harked back to this, uh, you know, film noir tradition of, like, you know, this sort of, like, dark world where, like, everyone's alone and everyone's doomed. Mm. Um, anyway. <laughs> Good times! Speaking of everyone being alone and everyone being doomed... <laughs> someone, jump on that segue, man! Jump on that segue! Ride that segue into the sunset! Yeah, so speaking of, uh, yeah, terrible things... Um, <laughs> Was it that bad? No, I saw okay, so I saw Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, and I want to use this opportunity to talk about the young Michael Sarah, who I think we all uh, have appreciated his work before. So let me just start by saying this: Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist was a pretty freaking bad movie. Um, Hackneyed writing. I quite like the trailer, you know, but I mean, the trailer was a trailer makes not a movie, as Master Yoda would say. Absolutely not. Um, Just to be in a nutshell, the writing was bad. There's a lot of coincidences um, that move the plot along. Um, overall, a pretty juvenile feel. The music was okay, but not that great. Um, just was not particularly satisfying in, in any stretch of the imagination either. But I want to see like, was this the comedy or the team comedy? Like we finally get like a real Michael Sarah sex scene. Did that happen? No? <laughs> uh, Michael Sarah does in fact have sex in this movie. Spoiler! Spoiler! Michael Sarah does have a sex scene. You don't really quite see him, you know, giving it to the girl. But there is an audio <laughs> orgasm. Definitely an audio orgasm. But the weird thing about the sex scene, I'm glad you brought this up, Matt, because this is one of the big problems with this movie. Is that is that um, you know they they're shown lying there post immediately post coital, you know, um, and then a phone call comes in and they have to roll and get off because they're going off to you know advance the plot and they roll off of each other and both got their pants on. <laughs> they never show, they, 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 it's like they actually had an orgasm, never got the pants off. But the larger point here, Michael Sarah got some game. Michael Sarah <laughs> does have, but here, that's my point though. Michael Sarah is either running out of game, or this whole awkward teenager thing is just not going to last him forever. Michael Sarah, if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> and we know you are, please, I know you are, or if your people are listening to this podcast, please, I beg of you. Listen, just watch, look at your filmography. You've done what have you done? Uh, Arrested Development, uh, Superbad, Juno, and now this. You played the same freaking character over and over again. I think you've got a couple more coming up that are awfully similar. Get off this train before it takes you to a place you don't want to be. But, but like, Mark Lee, what, what would you cast Michael Sarah as if you were like his, like if you were his Ari Gold and you wanted to like break him out of that ghetto? I would cast him as a junkie. Right? Something that's believable. You can't cast him as an action star, right? You can't, you know, make him the next. Yeah, well, try. Oh, okay. I'll fire, I'll fire the gun at the guy. I suppose I have the gun here, and I'm pointing it at you. So I guess I. I what do I do? Do I just, do I just pull the trigger? Do I, I just? Is that okay? Okay. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. That was just. I'm just. You know. I can't believe I just, I just shot that, you. That was weird. <laughs> Honest to blog. <laughs> I have a, well, that, how would, 
was that supposed to be Michael Sarah? Um, sorry, was that supposed to be Michael Sarah as a as a junkie or as an action star hero? Works <laughs> 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 both, right? <laughs> Touche, <laughs> sir. What were you going to ask, Jordan? Yeah, how would you feel about casting him as a caveman? Because that's what he's actually. No, that's not. He's doing some kind of like. That's what his actual his actual next movie this, is going this, to be. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? So, um, I, 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 I can't make this fire so good, and yeah, and I thought you could maybe help me. Uh, wait, yeah, is somebody going to elaborate on the he's going to play a caveman in his next movie thing, or are we just going to let that sit out there? <laughs> so he apparently is playing a character named O in a movie called The Year One, not to be confused with Batman Year One, uh, directed by <laughs> Harold Ramis, um, and the plot is... A couple of lazy hunter-gatherers, uh, played by Jack Black and Michael Sarah, are banished from their primitive village and set off on an epic journey through the ancient world. And it stars Jack Black, Michael Sarah, David Cross, Oliver Platt. I'm skipping people I don't know, recognize or care about. Hank Azaria, Vinnie Jones. Oli- uh, Olivia Wilde is the girl. Olivia Wilde, yeah, that's someone I don't care about. Who is, is she? Is the girl for Jack Black or Michael Sarah or both? Huh? Oh, she's 13. No, the, Olivia Wilde is 13 from uh, House, from the current season of House. By the way, notice that if you go down the cast uh, to the bottom, you come across Rick Overton playing a character named Sodom Officer Rick. So back to the, this whole, you know, discussion of Michael. Was the writing? I mean, it's a Diablo Cody script, right? Oh, the year one is? No, uh, Nick and Nora, right? <laughs> oh, no, I lied. Oh, no, no. oh I lied. That was just, I apparently don't know what the hell I'm talking about. It's by a woman named uh, Lorraine Scafaria by a novel by Rachel Cohn and David Leviathan. Diablo Cody has nothing to do with it. Honest to I, blog! I, wait, so, so Nick and Norris opening a playlist is based on a novel. Yes, it is. And I'm sure that novel is a lot better than the, uh, than the film. Well, you know. So, <laughs> Novels yeah, can Nick be pretty bad. Nick and Nora, bad movie, Michael Sarah. Gotta find something new. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Actually, like, Nick and Nora's is an example of a movie that, like, the title is really begging movie critics to review it negatively because, How like, so? there's such an obvious pun, you know, involving the title. What, Nick and Nora's Infinite Gay List? No, I was going to say, like, anything involving the word, like, infinite, uh, even, oh. like, you know, like, bird after reading, anything, it's like, you may want to burn your eyes after seeing bird after reading. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm overestimating how much movie critics like to like clever puns based on titles, but I feel like it's like how can you not give it a like, Nick and like porn movie makers. So it'd be Nick and Nora's unfun knit playlist. Right? Unfun-knit. <laughs> I suppose it literally like unravels fun like a sweater. <laughs> 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 I I feel like we should just in deference to Mark, I feel like we should a- answer his question about Michael Sarah. Oh, you know? so like what what should he do now? Well, right. I mean, what can he do now? I say ride that, you know, he's laughing all the way to the bank, you know? I say I say Michael Sarah ride that like smooth-cheeked, you know, boy awkward boy wonder thing. He's 20 now, you know? He won't be able to do it forever. But, is he the next John Cusack? I don't know about that. Like, like this sort of like you know shy, quirky, romantic, like leading man. Don't you think John Cusack is more of a leading man than Michael Sarah is? 
Yes, absolutely. Oh. But I feel like maybe for in a more sort of like ironic age, we want our sort of like quirky romantic leading men to be quirkier and nerdier than like in the mid eighties. It's the um, you know I was I yeah, a little tangent. Being an actor, I think about you know parts I could play, and I downloaded the soundtrack to a new musical by Jason Robert Brown, who's an interesting sort of piano musical theater composer. He did a show called Parade and another one called The Last Five Years. Um, And uh, it's called 13, and it's an all-teen musical. They're all teenagers, and it's an all-teen band. But the Well, it's a big gimmick, and I think they're trying to ride the Spring Awakening... You know, they're trying to create like the male wicked, you know, or wicked. Yeah, but, but, that, but, but I mean, 13, it seems to be like a lot more of like a comedy, right? Rather than like something that's like really going to be like, a, like, you know, the next rent or the next spring awakening. I guess so. It's it's I, I think, though, they're like going after the demographic. Anyway, I listened to this thing and the um, you know, a lot of musical theater composers are these like neurasthenic nebbishy guys who, you know, have bad social skills. And so they write these protagonists that are these neurasthenic nebbishy guys who have bad social skills. And, uh, you know, those aren't good. I, I have bad social skills, but I'm not a neurasthenic nebbishy sort of uh you know menchy kind of guy so like uh i can't play any of these parts and right so like don't you think that that this black people feel (laughs) god yeah i i like i'm a white you know i'm an uh educated white guy you know in the upper socioeconomic bracket right like and i feel discriminated against I feel discriminated against. Matt, you realize until you said that, none of the listeners of our podcast had any idea that you were white. (laughs) (laughs) That, like, you could have been anything. Right. Exactly. Because I'm always doing ethnic voices on the podcast. But my point my point is Matt, don't you think you're in this podcast, didn't you? (laughs) Um the um uh, don't you think there's like the cause of that is the fact that Judd Apatow is making so many romantic comedies now and not that it's it's not like a larger cultural problem uh, or not problem. It's not a larger cultural phenomenon. It has to do with with who's making the movies. If you're going to look for an antecedent to a musical about teenagers, you can skip right over Judd Apatow and go to High School Musical, which is one of the dominant cultural forces of the past like five or six years. Oh no, I was saying Matt. Matt was like Matt was talking about. Well, don't we want in a uh, in a like post nine one one world? Don't we want our don't <laughs> don't we want our leading men kind of awkward? Okay. I, and, I don't know. I think there was an article in like the New Yorker or something a couple of years ago about how the sort of like the new paradigm for the romantic comedy was the the slacker and the striver. That the girl was very put together, very type A, and she falls for like a guy who is like very sort of like I mean not not necessarily ugly, but very sort of average, very schlubby, very like either like a Seth Rogen or whoever the guy was, and uh, you know uh, I hate you, Sarah Palin, whatever that was. <laughs> No. What, we're I getting Sarah Marshall. Sarah Marshall? That I think that's pretty much what it was called. Jason Siegel. <laughs> I stand by my title. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like you know, the, I mean, the the idea is just that, like you know, I mean, I, I mean, you could go back to like you know, say anything. And it's a similar thing, right? Like you have like 
the girl who's like you know this sort of unobtainable perfect beauty and she falls for like a guy who's even nerdier than you and that's somehow appealing because like wow if if michael sarah can get this girl then like surely i can get two girls like that well, isn't this well, just I like mean, expectations and like pride and prejudice and things like that what is is pip like michael sarah yeah <laughs> yeah 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 Pride and Prejudice is the, the opposite, of course, yeah. right? Um, but it's certainly what you get in Bringing Up Baby when you have Catherine Hepburn, who's this, you know, uh, uh, very socially, well, she's not exactly socially adept. She's kind of like manic heiress. Right. Um, and then Cary Grant is uh, a total nerd. Right, but he's still Cary Grant. I think that's the point, is that, like, he's not a total nerd. He's Cary Grant playing a nerd, whereas Michael Sarah is actually a nerd. <laughs> so we just have method nerds now. I suppose, or like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't, I don't think like you know, Cary Grant is fooling anybody when he like tries to be, you know, like a paleontologist. He still uses <laughs> Cary Grant in a lab coat. You know who doesn't fool anybody when he tries to be a paleontologist? David Schwimmer. This is a guy. I would never believe him being a paleontologist for like fifteen minutes, let alone the twenty-two necessary for an entire episode of Friends. <laughs> a commercial. You know, you know who never fools anyone uh, when trying to be a nuclear physicist? Denise Richards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was definitely my my main example for one of Shana's posts about with <laughs> strong. We're talking about it. Uh, we're talking about it again here. She did say in that that like you know the the dudes have gotten schlubbier and schlubbier while the women remain these sort of you know perfect things. Uh, I don't think Shia LaBeouf in Transformers is schlubbier and schlubbier. Yeah, he's pretty schlubby. He's, you know, he's from the wrong side of the tracks. (laughs) (laughs) The girl is from the wrong side of the tracks. I don't know. Both sides of the tracks are pretty lame in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) And the train gets up and is a robot. (laughs) Yeah, the train is awesome. (laughs) All right, let's do the list of the things that we like. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Uh yeah, absolutely. You're you're uh moving on to Overthink This, our new last week weekly feature. Uh I thought it was actually called the list of the things that we like. <laughs> <laughs> this is um this is the Overthinking It's Infinite playlist or you know, <laughs> finite five item <laughs> extremely finite uh playlist. Since you're so eager, Matt, why don't you go first? Uh, I just saw earlier tonight uh, the premiere episode of uh, Valentine, a new uh, TV series on the CW, and this is like basically there's like a uh, like a very simple formula to see if you're gonna like Valentine. Did you like Quantum Leap? If so, you'll like Valentine. The plot of this is that um, Aphrodite is alive and well, as is her son Cupid and various other characters who, do, who we don't care about, and that it's her it's job. Exactly like, like Quantum Leap. <laughs> Is Scott Bakula well, play Aphrodite? Is that? No, wait. I'm I'm getting there. So that okay. so that um the the idea is like it's it's their um the mission. You know, Aphrodite and Cupid and everything is people who are truly meant to be together, like soulmates who are like designed for each other. Like she's supposed to give them a nudge in the right direction, so they meet and they get together, and like fate's plan is fulfilled. But in this sort of digital age, in the in the in the age of like internet dating and everything, she's just sort of like old fashioned. She doesn't really. Um, you know, like shooting people with magical arrows isn't going to cut it anymore. So in the in the premiere episode, she recru- she recruits um, basically um, uh, Kathleen Turner's character from *Romancing the Stone*, like a, a popular writer of romance novels, um, 
who like you know is supposed to be like an expert on the human heart uh and and has like a very classic scene where she has to sit down and explain like i'm aphrodite and i convince people to be in love and like you know as as happens in any movie when you have a conversation like that the other character has to be like okay i'm gonna be leaving now and then there's like a demonstration of magical powers and then the real conversation can happen um and so basically in every episode this new character whose name i i forgot this this romance novel writer character is going to have to basically concoct a way to get two people together that either like have not met or have met and then like other third parties intervene and tore them apart to basically like it's basically the love boat but there's no boat so when you were saying that it was like quantum leap you were you're trying to say that it was like hitch because it sounds like it's like Hitch. <laughs> no, but the, the reason it's like Quantum Leap is they have the Oracle of Delphi, and the Oracle of Delphi tells them things. It's like, you know, like, if they don't get together by the time they get to Las Vegas on that train, then, like, she's going to die alone and will get eaten by her cats, and, like, he's never going to get married and, like, will eventually, like, you know, like, shoot up a police station or something. <laughs> not not literally that. That's not a quote for the dot. But like they literally will like step out that like here are the various things that need to happen. So in a way it's sort of like that the, the setup of like Back to the Future where like they need to go to this dance together one way or another or else like the future will be lost forever. So it's like it's it's very much the sort of like we have a particular mission. We have like information on these two people that like, you know, we have through magical means and that like we have to come up with like a clever scheme to like make things happen the way that they're meant to happen. And and I the reason I know that it's really the true successor to Quantum Leap is because all the commercials in the middle were for compilations of Christian music. <laughs> and and if you recall correctly, like Quantum Leap turned out more and more as it went on, but like in the final episode very explicitly, to be like a show about sort of like God and his like benevolent, you know, ways of right. of ensuring our happiness and felicity. But so not like quite this, like Highway to Heaven or Touched by an Angel. I mean it was a little bit more cosmopolitan than that. Right. And as as is Valentine, because they are in fact pagan gods, but <laughs> nevertheless the fact that like I think they're specifically targeting like a Christian audience who likes sort of like happy endings and stories about like true love. Um, yeah, God knows no one else likes those. Hey, can I can I ask a question in all seriousness? Yeah. Uh, why why do you uh, why do you like this show so much? I don't know. You know what? Maybe it was just tonight, and I'll never like it again. But I mean, like right now, I would definitely pick it over like the CW's other, you know, like like Gossip Girl. I think I liked the sort of like the 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 formula. Maybe I like I gravitate towards shows that have like a like a framework and that establish a universe in which there are certain rules in play, and that Gossip Girl isn't structured enough for me. It's just sort of a drama in which anything can happen. I like the idea that like it's 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 not a show that like it's like a soap opera. Every episode builds off of every episode. I feel that like in the future when there are like 500 episodes of Valentine in existence, which there doubtlessly will be, that like I could put on any one of them and like I'll be able to enjoy it without having seen the previous episode. So basically that it doesn't challenge you. I suppose that, that it's like, it's definitely like comfort food in a TV okay. show. Yeah, it's yeah like no, Walker it's true that you should watch, you should watch a challenging show like Gossip Girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shit that I'll really like push the boundaries of like narrative. Um, no, I mean, I, I, hey, I, Matt, I you know, know what? I Actually, there's something to be said for a simple story well told. There's this show, there's a great show and you should totally watch it. It's called The Wire. Okay, what do you got? My pick for this week is the hot new teaser trailer of uh, – well, let me take a hot uh, a mini step back. What if I told you – you guys familiar with the work of Stephen Chow? Uh, brilliant Hong Kong comedy master, makes action-packed movies that are also hilarious. This, if he was producing a movie, you'd be, you'd be interested, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and what, what do you think about Chaoyun Fat? Like, legendary star of the screen, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, like, uh, hard-boiled hard killer. This is, this, is a, this is a badass guy, right? This guy, if those two guys were to work together on something, you know it's got to be good, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What about if I tell you that they were set up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, come on. And then what if I were to tell you that they were collaborating on one of the most legendary, beloved, and long-running martial arts franchises in, in the history of the world? And you'd be pretty excited about these things. I mean, this sounds pretty good. So, like good stuff, they right? A version of Kung Fu. <laughs> no, they are in fact part of the travesty and abomination that is the 2009 Hollywood movie of Dragon Ball, uh, which has a <laughs> hot no attached to that. It's Dragon what? Ball without any modifier. No, they, they're leaving the option for Z for a sequel so that we can or, have a lot to talk God about. Forbid, a GT. Yeah, that's right. Oh man. So, so the teaser. So the the of course people are complaining. Like, hey, why is the lead of this movie some random white guy who was in War of the Worlds? Like, how come the characters who are in it seem to be fairly minor from the from this the movie? And how come it looks like a bad Mortal Kombat ripoff and and all these other things? And why does it have the Black Ghostbuster in it? Um, and I know that a lot of people. <laughs> If somebody asks you if you're a Super Saiyan, you say <laughs> you yes. Say yes. Uh, I was really excited about this movie when it was going to come out this year on my birthday, and I was totally going to go see it. I'm significantly less excited about it now that it's going to be coming out at some point next year, and they've been kind of working on it a little bit, and like, maybe they'll forget it out, maybe they won't. Um, I mean, you know, I think that, that my fascination with this movie comes from a couple of different angles. One, everyone loves a train wreck. Uh, two... This is a franchise that is not necessarily going to be greatly additionally insulted by another bullshit remake or sequel. There are no fewer than 13 theatrically released movies in, in Japan uh, based on the Dragon Ball franchise, along with a multi-year uh, sequel spin-off series that was in itself an abomination. So the, there's no, the additional abomination being heaped on here is trivial. Um, and also, I just, I, I'd love to see it on the big screen. And, and my expectations are so low that they can't possibly disappoint me. I mean, it's like Sarah Palin, for Christ's sake. You know, like, I, I expect them to walk out there and just, like, start gibbering and not finish for an hour and a half and just try to punch each other and fail. And if all they get off one little laser beam out of their hands, I'm going to be, I'm going to be totally pleased with that. So, so on it. that's going to be a great movie. What's the difference between Bulma and a pit bull? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> You'll have to tune in next week to find out. You know what? I think you can find out all about that on the American Kennel Club website. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hang on. I just want to. We asked you to say what are what are you most excited about this week, and your answer was an acceptable level of atrocity. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe maybe my expectations have been lowered uh, due to a variety of re- actually really terrible things happening. Um, that's something that is merely an embarrassment to everyone involved in it is actually kind of encouraging. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Jordan, what do you got? Um, you know, lately I have been watching uh, a couple of TV shows I've been watching. I've been watching House a lot, which is, which is good. You guys should probably watch House. Uh, but the one that I want to talk about is uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Has any of you seen that? Yeah. Well, I've seen I it have, on Hulu. I've heard good things about it. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen a picture of it on Hulu. I, I have it on Hulu now, so there's no excuse for not, you know, going and watching it now. And I, I just like it because it's um, 
it's very different from the other comedies that are out there because the characters just kind of yell at each other and um, not, not in the way that you might have a line that you've been given to, to read that involves yelling, but just in the way that people yell at each other with a lot of interrupting and a lot of, uh, a lot of real spite behind it. It, it, it kind of comes out of Curb Your Enthusiasm, maybe. Uh, maybe comes out of like an improv comedy background, maybe a little Robert Altman going on in there. But uh, basically the way that every episode works is, like, the characters have various goals, which are very self-serving um, and conflict with each other. And they kind of, like, pile them into a room, uh, in the way, sort of in like a classic farce setup, and then they just get into this screaming match. And then the episode ends. <laughs> and it's really interesting to watch it play out again and again, I find. Wow. All right. Does Danny DeVito it. appear in it, or is he just involved in the creative? He's actually, uh, well, the way that it worked, I think, is that um, two of the younger guys made some episodes just like walking around Philadelphia with a, with a video camera. They got the show picked up. Uh, they did one season which made enough money for them to hire Danny DeVito, who is now like a regular cast member. Oh, he's a cast member. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's actually in the show. I thought he was like the creative force behind the, uh, the whole thing. No, 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 they they like they they uh they made like their they made their pile and they're like what are we going to do with all this money? We're going to hire Danny DeVito. <laughs> you know, I can think of worse things. Yeah, right. I mean, he's, I make a lot of money. I'm going to hire Danny DeVito just to hang out. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what they did because it doesn't seem to be all that scripted. But no, it's it's a funny show. They uh they hunt man. They uh they carry uh, giant drums of gas around, intending to stockpile it and sell it again when uh, gas prices get higher. Uh, it's good stuff. What what would you say is the overarching sort of like uh, concept behind the sitcom? The the, the you know. The well, con- I think it's. I think it's like I said, it's like getting people in a room together to scream at each other. Um, but what's the premise of, of you know, premise, the- I believe they've listed their premise as Seinfeld on crack. <laughs> They're like, uh, uh, most I mean, of are them, they friends? Are they family? Do they work together? There's a family, all of the above. There's a family that owns okay. an unsuccessful Irish bar in Philadelphia, and like a couple of their friends do some work at the bar. Um, and they have wacky misadventures. It really doesn't seem to be modeled on, like, the sitcom plot where you have a, a social situation and then, like, crazy things happen. It's more on, like, a screwball comedy plot where, like, people have ridiculous plans that they try to carry out. I get behind that. Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a recent episode that you would love where uh, they decided that the reason none of their schemes were working is that they weren't following, like, the classic uh, sort of team dynamic of having there be the brains and the muscle and the wild card. Yeah. Uh, and they, like, decide to assign these roles to each other. And then they, like, go around trying to do things and, like, sort of step on each other's toes. Like, the, the wild card guy takes off his shirt. Like, no, 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 hang on, hang on. I'm still trying to muscle this out. He's like, I've already wild carded. You can't, like, pull the wild card back once it's been played. And then they, you know, they shout at each other some more. <laughs> By the way, I'd like to point out that uh, according to, if I'm not mistaken... According to Wiki Answers, Danny DeVito does legally count as a midget. He's supposedly five feet even, and it says that the little people of America defines dwarfism 
uh, as an adult height of five feet or shorter. We are like reading the trades today. Like we're on the Chihuahua. We're in the Chihuahua Club <laughs> defining the breed. We're on the Little People's Association of America site. We are reading the trades for you. By the way, um, I, I was looking up and Edward James Olmos plays a German shepherd. Right, because he's not. It would be racist to have him play a Chihuahua when he's not acting. Oh, no, 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 sorry, a Doberman. The German Shepherd's another uh, another famous actor who's reaching the sad twilight of his career. Huh. Perhaps a German actor. Perhaps. <laughs> Mark Lee, what do you have for us? All right, I got um, a good nugget from one of my favorite musicians, the player of the piano, Ben, Mister Ben Folds. He's got a new album out. Um, a follow-up from a, kind of a sleeper of, of a last album, Songs of Silverman, uh, the new one being uh, Way to Normal. Um, it's a great album. It's, it kind of brings back the frenetic energy of old Ben Folt's five uh, work that he'd done. But my one favorite track from this is by far is uh, Malva Franity coming up, The Bitch Went Nuts. Um, it's huh. a, a just a kind of a, if you remember the... Um, is that the name of the record? Or is that the name the... of the song? The name of the oh, song okay. that I really like from this is what's, The Bitch Went Nuts. What's the it's, record It's called? a breakup song. Um, but the thing I like about it the most, though, is that just let me read the lyrics for this one part here. It says, the bitch went nuts. She photoshopped my face onto every boy who'd done her wrong. And me being the nerd that I am, it just warms my heart so much that photoshopping uh, next uh, boyfriend's face onto photographs is something that is just part of the common parlance these days that can make its way into, into a breakup song. Um, and that we can all understand that. It's like photoshopping it is just, it's understood. It's something that people do. It's not some exotic photo manipulation thing. Um, it's, you know. It's, done, by, done by the media elites in, you know, New yeah. York. Now, do you think that those are supposed to be like actual photoshopping or is it a metaphorical photoshopping? I think it's actual photoshopping because the next, the next the lyric here is that then she burned them telepathically. Um, them being the pictures, um, onto the brains of all of her embittered drones. So there's a mixture, I think, obviously here, a mixture going on of the, of the literal and the metaphorical here. It's metaphorical telepathy, but literal Photoshop. One would hope, yes. Yes. <laughs> so nice. Ben Folds, he's back, he's rocking it on the piano. Excellent. We'll put a link uh, to the uh, Amazon thing where you can buy it or download it. Yep. Excellent. And finally, my uh, pick is uh, I love Joe's Garage, which is a concept album by Frank Zappa in three volumes. I think it was released on two records, but it's structured in, I think, volumes one, two, and three. Uh, and it has, um, it's the story of uh, Joe, who wants to play uh, rock and roll guitar, uh, but his girlfriend, Mary, uh, who his, is his like good Catholic girlfriend, runs off uh, and trades sexual favors to get in backstage at a rock and roll band show. And she ends up going on tour uh, with them and getting you know used as a sex toy by the roadies and then comes back and gives him a venereal disease. And it just gets better and better from there. 
Um, now, it was conceived as a rock opera, but it was never really produced. And the thing that, oh, and the whole story is narrated by an Orwellian presence called the Central Scrutinizer, who whispers at you. It's like, this is the Central Scrutinizer. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a work of, of genius, you know, the likes of which, uh, mankind is not likely to see again. Anyway, uh, never actually produced on stage, but, um, it has been the open fist theater company in California, uh, in LA is staging Joe's garage in Hollywood, um, it's, uh, you know, sort of been adapted for the stage to sort of, I guess, done it to um, bring it up to its original vision. And uh, it's been done with the permission of the Zappa Family Trust, which I think is run by Mr. Zappa's widow. Uh, if you're out in L.A., it runs September 18th through November uh, 22nd. It, you know, seems to be seems to be. Uh, just an awesome thing. Uh, and there are details at openfist.org there. I'm actually going to LA this week to um, go to my high school reunion, and I plan on checking it out while I am there. It sounds pretty rad. Joe's Garage. It does sound cool. I don't think there are enough rock operas in the world. I feel like every band should attempt one at some point. <laughs> I think that the, uh, the central scrutinizer should moderate the next presidential debate. <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know, speaking of presidential debates, I almost made my pick Saturday Night Live, which I think is enjoying a resurgence, at least in the Tina Fey, Sarah Palin skits. At the top of the show. I feel like pretty much like a semi-permanent cast member until Sarah Palin is no longer like a cultural presence. You better pray that that's how it goes. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like, you know, who who else are they going to get to step into those, uh, that hair? Right. (laughs) To step, to step into those designer (laughs) frames, eyeglass frames. Right. Uh, Obviously Keenan. Keenan Thompson. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, you know, the funny joke, the like the gawker joke, or maybe it was defamer was that like, you know, you can get, um, you can get Queen Latifah to play Gwen Ifill so that you don't actually have to hire a black woman to be on Saturday night live, you know, and you have, yeah. uh, you have Fred yeah. Armisen who plays Barack Obama, you know, actually he doesn't do a bad job at Barack That's not Obama. A very funny joke. Yeah, no, no it was not more. Patient, but it is. It was more a, a pointed comment, I guess. You know, of of a particular type. All right, uh, this was the podcast. Uh, if you like, you can uh, email us at podcast at overthinking it. Uh, dot com or if you want to leave a voicemail message that will be played back on the show call 203-285-6401 that's 203-285-6401 I would like to devote an episode at some point uh, to answering listener mail uh, or you know just playing back voicemails. So if you call uh, 203-285-6401 podcast at overthinkingit.com and hey, would it kill you to go on over to the iTunes page, search for Overthinking It, look at our podcast and add uh, just a bitchin' five-star review. That would help help our ranking in their list. It would help other people find us. It would just be a great 
uh, great, great thing. Uh, when you get so, passive aggressive towards our listeners, you know, <laughs> <laughs> would it kill you? Yeah. I suppose you're too busy. I suppose. I suppose you're too busy to go onto iTunes. Yeah. What with your job? In an hour and a half, you just spent listening yeah, to right. us. Talk about you obviously have a lot of great things to do listening to us all the time. Uh, Matt pull Palinke. the plug on it. Pull the plug on it. <laughs> Matt Palinke, how can people contact you? Um, I don't know. You just go to a showing of Beverly Hills Chihuahua. I'll, <laughs> I'll be there where a showing of Beverly Hills Chihuahua lights up the screen. I'll be there. Uh, I don't know. Actually, uh, it's Belinky at overthinking it. Individual com. email addresses now. Uh, yeah, they're all last name at overthinking it. com. So that's B E L I N K I E at overthinking it. com. Excellent. And Matt Belinky, uh, the creator of the Dark Bailout, uh, a. Yes. Which has broken the uh, top 100 for YouTube views this month. That is no mean feat. Uh, it's 99 for, right now, but thanks. <laughs> search for the Dark Bailout on YouTube. Uh, Mr. Lee, how can they get in touch with you? That's Lee at overthinkingit.com. L-E-E at overthinkingit.com. Mr. Fenzel. Oh, uh, you can email me at F-E-N-Z-E-L at overthinkingit.com. And quick reminder, we still are looking for more entries into the Linda Hamilton Memorial Women in Action first annual Overthinking It screenwriting contest. Oh, this is something I wanted to ask you. Is yes. it – in what sense is it memorial? Uh, <laughs> do you remember that time that Linda Hamilton was in Terminator 2? Yeah. Do you remember that time? <laughs> yes, I do. It's memorial. <laughs> it's memorial because they don't, people they let her legacy die rather than hold it up even during her own lifetime, which is sad. Legacy of kick-ass female action heroes who are not beholden to sexual exploitation. Uh, yeah, no, good point. Does, does Mila Jovovich not count? You know what? Mila Jovovich – to say that Mila Jovovich has not been exploited in her movies is a little bit um, – I don't know. I could do a whole other, you know, I'll, I'll address that in a future column. Okay, that's great. <laughs> and another, <laughs> a, uh, Pete wrote the, um, Pete wrote the uh, Foot Clan uh, press releases uh, about the economic bailout package. And Pete, I think you have another post in the works about the economics of the Foot Clan. Is that not, is that not I, the I case? I worked on that for a little while, yeah. Uh, how the Foot Clan makes money. I was actually kind of a bit of a disappointment because I wanted to show how the Foot Clan could not possibly actually make money, and then I made an Excel sheet and ran the numbers and found that they were actually quite profitable. <laughs> so when, when we post the thing, we will have an Excel sheet that you can download uh, on the blog. If you don't believe, don't take our word for it. Run the numbers yourself. And finally, Jordan Stokes, it's really great to have you, dude. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I, I, <laughs> Yeah, I've been busy. Uh, you, you're going to ask, like, how can people contact me? Like, probably, honestly, they can't. <laughs> wait, 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 wait till January. I'll check my email then. <laughs> Fair enough. Got it. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I am Matt Rather, Rather, at W-R-A-T-H-E-R at overthinkingit.com, the blog that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.beverlyhillschihuahua. <laughs> Honest to blog! Honest to blog. <laughs> Why does that movie exist, man? I just don't get it. <laughs>
Wait, do you know or Beverly Hills Chihuahua? No, Beverly Hills Chihuahua. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Is it supposed to be a notional sequel to Beverly Hills Cop? Yeah, Beverly Hills Billies. I don't know. Later post about how it ranks in the hierarchy of Beverly Hills titular movies. Yeah.